Hello. Thank you. Do you guys know that this moves? See this happening? This is my favorite thing about this church so far. <laughs> um, lucky you. We've done like a whole long time and you still have to listen to me talk this morning. So that's nice. Um, I'm so happy to be here and so glad to be um, to be preaching. Thanks for having me do this on the first Sunday of Advent. Um, there was a researcher in the 1950s, and he conducted an experiment. I'm so sorry because it's a little bit disturbing. He would drop rats into buckets of water. Yep, I fair warning. Um, and time how long it took before they drowned. I know. Who wants to guess how long it takes for them to drown? How long can something tread water before? Six minutes, two minutes, 15. 15 minutes on average it took before they gave up and drowned. So in the second part of his experiment, he would put them in the water, and then just before the 15-minute mark, he would take them out, pull them out of the water, dry them off, feed them, let them rest, and then throw them back in. I'm so sorry. And how long do you think they could swim the second time? Okay, five minutes, 20 minutes. Over 60 hours, two and a half days. When they have this idea in their head that at some point, just when I think I can't make it anymore, someone is going to grab me out of this bucket, they can swim for more than two and a half days. That's the power of hope. There is a lot of darkness in our world right now. A lot, a lot of people who are treading water. There's these global things like the political climate (laughs) um, and uh, some people being appointed to power. The Standing Rock protests, the bombing in Aleppo of the very last children's hospital. This devastating tsunami in Haiti, remember that? That was just like a month ago and we don't even hear about that anymore because there's so many other things. These huge global things where people are treading water to survive. And then there are personal things that seem smaller in a list, but they they cut us more sharply sometimes when they're closer. Like depression or the loss of loved ones, extended chronic illnesses, loneliness, financial struggle. Everybody is treading water, and there is a temptation to give up. And I want us to know this morning that it was not supposed to be like this. In the beginning, God created humankind to live in good relationship. Relationship with himself and with each other and with the world around them. It's Lego. I think that Adam and Eve probably looked like that. It was a good life, relationship that was totally unbroken. But pretty early on, the first people stopped trusting God. It was suggested to them, perhaps not from the most reliable source, uh, that maybe God wasn't acting in their best interest after all. And they start asking, is God really good? 
do you think God really loves me? And they decide to try to make it on their own. Now, it doesn't really seem like a big deal to ask that question, right? Does God love me? We ask that kind of question all the time. Except that once you start to question someone, it is so hard to turn back from that. Once you're suspicious of someone, no matter what they do, it feeds your suspicion. It's just like this thing that hangs there in the back of your mind, always asking, are you sure? Are you sure? What about? And it wrecks the relationship. And so since that early time, those first people, no matter who you are or what kind of history you have with the church, these are the central questions that humans are asking. Is God really good? And does he love me? Is he for my good? And God spends literally ages, like the entirety of the New Testament, (laughs) trying to win people back into relationship with himself, back where we belong. When they're obedient, he sends gifts and blessings and protection. When they're disobedient, he does whatever he can to get their attention back. And it's things like war and famine and exile. It's not because he's horrible. It's because he's trying to get their attention. And when they stop and they cry out to him, he answers them every time. And there are prophets and miracles and signs and wonders. And the truth is, none of it really works. Because it's hard to trust a God you're suspicious of. So God makes a new plan. And I'm going to read... Uh, the plan, this is a poem written by a Jesuit father, and he writes this from the perspective of God deciding what to do. This is called Incarnation. We tried in so many ways to communicate our love. If communication is not what you say but what people hear, then what we said was warped and wrenched into distancing prescriptions that had no heart. You asked for food, we sent manna. You asked for drink, water flowed from the rock. You asked for directions, Moses brought the law. And on and on. And still, you grew more distant, more deaf, more blind. Memories dulled, speech slurred, dreams dissolved into wander dust. And so, we did what families do. When they're confronted with calamity, we drew straws and Shorty lost. He came to share your plight, your fight, your night, and point you toward tomorrow. God's new plan, he plans the incarnation of his word, his very self. He's going to put on flesh and blood and come into his created world. The creator comes into the created world to join us so that he can demonstrate his love and make relationships right once and for all. But it takes some time for that to happen. And where we jump into the story this morning in Luke, it's the months that are leading up to the birth of Jesus. And it has been 400 years since God spoke to his people directly. 
400 years since Malachi, who was the last prophet, wrote anything. So 400 years of silence. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I get sort of antsy if God hasn't answered my prayer in 48 hours, right? <laughs> let alone 400 years. It's generations of people who haven't heard anything. It's a pretty long time to be treading water. And I think that chances are a lot of people had given up waiting, and they were more or less resigned to life as it was. And then in Luke 2, there is a very short story about a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna, who are two elderly people who meet Jesus when he is a very small baby, 40 days old. At 40 days, there are some sacrifices and offerings that parents are supposed to make in the temple, especially for a firstborn. And so Mary and Joseph take the baby to the temple, and they're greeted by these two elderly believers. I'm going to read you the story. This is uh, Luke 2, and if you want to follow along with me, it's starting on verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Okay, I'm skipping a little bit. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter... hmm, I so meant to find out how you say this. The daughter of Phanuel? (laughs) Okay. Anyway, she has a dad. The tribe of Asher. (laughs) She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I love thinking about this tiny baby being welcomed into the temple at Jerusalem by these elders who have been faithful for a long time. We just meet Simeon and Anna after Jesus' birth, but the truth is they had been walking in hope for years. It seems that at some point in his life, God gave Simeon a very specific promise that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. He's quite old now. He might have waited a lot longer than he thought he was going to have to wait for that. And I bet that Simeon was a little bit strange to talk to during coffee hour. You know, like if you have a chat with him, I wonder how often he brings this up. I'm not going to die, you know. (laughs) Not till I see him, not till I see the Messiah. I mean, I just, I just imagine that people, oh, you're good, Simeon, thank you. And like, people probably rolled their eyes, but he held on. In 2006, I was in the downtown east side of Vancouver with some students. 
and I met a man in the park there. The downtown east side is this 100-block um, space uh, where there's a higher concentration of drug use than anywhere else in the country. It's been in the news quite a bit lately because of the overwhelming number of drug overdoses that are happening. And uh, when I was there in 06, heroin was the drug of choice. And so the alleys, the whole city was sort of scattered with needles. And so the man I met was, um, he was a recovering addict and doing some community service. And he was very systematically raking the sand in the playground to find any needles that were buried there so he could take them out and the kids wouldn't step on them, which is good. Um, it was a very hard story, his life. And as he told me, I was sort of overwhelmed, and I said, I don't understand how you keep going. What gives you hope? And this man just stopped. Like, he, he was a, a relatively young man. I think he just stopped, and he puts his rake down, and he said, Look, I know that Jesus is on the throne in heaven, and he is coming again to make all of this right. Okay, I did not expect that <laughs> from the guy raking the park, right, looking for needles. That is not what I thought he would say. But he clung to that through everything. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but I know that I know that Jesus is on the throne and there would come a day when all of this was made right. One of the ways that we practice hope is we cling to a promise. It might be a prophetic word that was spoken over us years ago, and it might be a truth that we know more broadly from Scripture, like my friend in the park. Whatever its form, we remember that promise. We cling to it. Because hope isn't a miracle thing, and it's not easy or quick. It's this deliberate choice to attend to an eventual future certainty, even though there is no evidence of that thing today. We pray towards it. We focus our hearts on it. What promises do you cling to? Another way that we practice hope is by making it part of the daily ritual of our life, like brushing our teeth. Right? Almost no one forgot to brush your teeth this morning. And if you did, you're probably not going to tell us. That's fine. Keep that to yourself. Um, Anna, we're told, Anna, how about if I be a little bit more reverent? Okay. Uh, Anna, we're told, never leaves the temple. She goes there every day to pray and fast. She has this rhythm in her life that focuses her heart on hope. And her life isn't easy. She lost her husband after just seven years of marriage, and now she's 84. So I don't know exactly how old she was when she got married, but we're talking about 50 or 60 years of daily prayer at the temple. A ritual that is so normal now, it's like breathing. For a few years, I lived in Kingston, Ontario, and while I lived there, I was Anglican, um, and I loved it. <laughs> it took some getting used to, but I just came to deeply appreciate the liturgy in that service, the same prayers that were spoken week after week. Now, the criticism sometimes is that prayers can be 
less real or less genuine if you're reading a script. And, I, you know, I understand that. It just was not my experience. In fact, there were some times in that season when my own experience of God was kind of waning. And I don't think I could have muscled up new, fresh prayers. And so if it had been up to me to come up with something new every week, I might have given up. And the rituals of prayer, the liturgy carried me. You know, I relied on the words that had been true for generations before, and I spoke them in faith that they were true now, regardless of my own emotional state. And it really helped me. What are the rituals that carry you in hard times? This is an interesting age that we live in. Because we believe that Jesus came already and he brought the kingdom of God with him. That's the New Testament scriptures that you've been reading for a few months now. But it's also clear from our lived experience that the work isn't finished yet. There's a completion that won't happen until he comes a second time. So we live in this weird tension between the now and the not yet. The kingdom is at hand now, of course. The kingdom in its fullness, not yet. We're in a very similar situation to Simeon and Anna. We're certain that God is on the throne, but we have to live in hope. And so, Advent. Advent is Latin for coming, and it's a season in the church calendar where we look for the coming. We prepare for the coming and hope for the coming of Jesus. Now, I appreciate that it's not a quick thing. You know, it can take a long time to get ready. Uh, My dear friends over here who came are not even staying with me, and it took me a couple of days to get my house ready for them. Now, partly that's because I'm just moving in, right? So there's still boxes and whatever. And you can stop by any time, and I will let you right into the mess and chaos that is my house. But when it's special company, you get ready. And so Advent is a whole season, four full weeks, to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And since none of its themes, hope, love, joy, and peace, come super easily, at least they don't to me, maybe they do to you, we use this season to practice. The church uh, has historically used Advent wreaths and Advent candles as a visual reminder, and we're going to do that again. I'm going to pick something up off the floor. Um, we're going to light candles in our service, of course, but we also have these, I don't want to call these Advent logs because that seems somehow unfortunate, so I'll call them an Advent wreath. (laughs) Thanks, Laura. (laughs) Okay, I thought that was going to be funny too. We'll call these Advent wreaths, um, and I think they're gorgeous. There's a wreath here for every household uh, to take home with them, and Uh, I want you to put it somewhere where you can use it every day. Maybe it's the mantle, maybe it's your dining room table or the coffee table. And every week at church, we'll give you a candle to put, the next candle to put in your Advent wreath. And the candle will come with a prayer and some questions for you to use um, with your home, with your friends and your family. Uh, So this week, you have to carry around your big wreath on your way out. So you'll get these at the door as you're leaving. 
And the question this week is really simple. What do you hope for? And where did you find hope today? And I hope that you'll gather with your household every day to light the candle and read that prayer and answer that question, to make it part of your daily ritual so that, like Anna, it can carry you through hard seasons. And, you know, sometimes this feels strange, but don't be afraid in that time to share with the people at your table a word that God has spoken over you, a promise that he's made, so that, like Simeon, you can cling to his promise. I want us to give ourselves to practicing hope this season of Advent. I'm going to light the hope candle. Well, we'll see. I, I want you to pay attention to hope this week and give yourselves to the practice of it because it makes a big difference in the length of time you can swim.